0: European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 44, Issue 40. Focus Issue, Clinical Trials, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, and read to you by Morgan Bryan. Innovative Trials in Heart Failure, Dyslipidemias, and Sinus Node Dysfunction. This focus issue on clinical trials contains the -the state-of-the-art review article entitled Rapid, accurate publication and dissemination of clinical trial results, benefits and challenges by Fayez Zanad and colleagues from the Institut Lorraine du Coeur et des Vesaux in Vandouvre-le-Nancy, France. The authors note that large-scale clinical trials are essential in cardiology and require rapid, accurate publication and dissemination. Whereas conference presentations, press releases, and social media disseminate information quickly, and often receive considerable coverage by mainstream and healthcare media, they lack detail, may emphasise selected data, and can be open to misinterpretation. Preprint servers speed access to research manuscripts while awaiting acceptance for publication by a journal. these articles are not formally peer-reviewed and sometimes overstate the findings. Publication of trial results in a major journal is very demanding but the use of existing checklists can help accelerate the process. In case of rejection, procedures such as easing formatting requirements and possibly carrying over peer review to other journals could speed resubmission. Secondary publications can help maximise benefits from clinical trials. Publications of secondary endpoints and subgroup analyses further define treatment effects and the patient populations most likely to benefit. These rely on data access and, although data sharing is becoming more common, many challenges remain. Beyond publication in medical journals, there is a need for wider knowledge dissemination to maximise impact on clinical practice. This might be facilitated through plain-language summary publications. Social media, websites, mainstream news outlets and other publications, although not peer-reviewed, are important sources of medical information for both the public and clinicians. This underscores the importance of ensuring that the information is understandable, accessible, balanced, and trustworthy. This report is based on discussions held on December 2021 at the 18th Global Cardiovascular Clinical Trials Meeting, involving a panel of editors of some of the top medical journals, as well as members of the lay press industry and clinical trialists. In a Viewpoint article entitled Critical Reading of Cardiovascular Trials with Neutral or Negative Results, the late Claudio Rapetzi and colleagues from the Università degli Studi di Ferrara in Italy note that randomized controlled trials, or RCTs, may change the standard of care of patients sharing the characteristics of trial participants. However, well-designed trials with neutral, i.e. where no significant difference between the treatment and its comparator, or negative findings, i.e. where the comparator seems more effective and or the intervention caused harm, deserve scientific scrutiny to understand why the primary endpoint was not met it's particularly important to differentiate well-designed and well-conducted RCTs from RCTs burdened by methodological issues. The authors propose a general framework to the interpretation of neutral or negative trials based on this differentiation and then on p-values for well-designed and well-conducted RCTs or on the identification of the possible methodological issues. Treatment of acute heart failure, or AHF, remains challenging. In particular, patients hospitalized for AHF continue to be discharged on an inadequate number of guideline directed medical therapies, or GDMTs, despite evidence that inpatient initiation is beneficial. In a Fast Track Clinical Research article entitled, Electronic Health Record Alerts for management of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction in hospitalized patients. The prompt AHF trial. La Ghazi and colleagues from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in Alabama, USA aim to examine whether a tailored electronic health record, or EHR alert, increased rates of GDMT prescription and discharge in eligible patients hospitalized for AHF. A trial of messaging to providers about treatment of AHF prompt AHF, was a pragmatic, multi-centre, EHR-based and randomised clinical trial. Patients were automatically enrolled 48 hours after admission if they met pre-specified criteria for an AHF hospitalisation. Providers of patients in the intervention arm received an alert during order entry with relevant patient characteristics, along with individualised GDMT recommendations with links to an order set. The primary outcome was an increase in the number of GDMT prescriptions at discharge. 1,012 patients were enrolled between May 2021 and November 2022. The median age was 74 years. 26% were female and 24% were black. At the time of the alert, 85% of patients were on beta blockers, 55% on an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor stroke angiotensin receptor blocker stroke angiotensin receptor neprilism inhibitor, 20% on a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, or MRA, and 17% on a sodium-glucose-cotransporter-2 inhibitor. The primary outcome occurred in 34% of both the alert and no-alert groups. Adjusted risk ratio, or RR, 0.95, 0.81 to 1.12, P equaling 0.99. Patients randomised to the alert arm were more likely to have an increase in MRA. Adjusted RR, 1.54, 1.10 to 2.16, P equaling 0.01. At the time of discharge, 11.2% of patients were on all four pillars of GDMT. The authors conclude that a real-time targeted and tailored EHR-based alert system for AHF did not lead to a higher number of overall GDMT prescriptions at discharge. Further refinement and improvement of such alerts and changes to clinician incentives are needed to overcome barriers to the implementation of GDMT during hospitalizations for AHF. GDMT remains suboptimal in this setting, with only one in nine patients being discharged on a comprehensive evidence-based regimen for HF. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Nicholas Brownell and Greg Foneroy from the University of California in Los Angeles, California, USA. The authors conclude by noting that there is clearly a need for a complete paradigm shift in the approach to patients hospitalised with HF. Therapeutic goals should be set to ensure that each eligible patient leaves the hospital on the treatment most likely to improve quality of life and increase longevity. Available evidence supports the clinical benefits of rapid and intensive optimisation of GDMT along with substantial harms associated with delaying therapy. Every hospitalization represents a vital opportunity to intensify disease modifying therapy. Hospitalization for HF demands a prompt response. Simultaneous or rapid sequence initiation of disease modifying therapy for HF is the foundation for doing so. The findings from PROMPT-HF will hopefully foster identification of effective strategies to overcome inertia and new efforts to improve the initiation and optimization of the use of comprehensive GDMT in HF. High percentages of atrial pacing have been associated with an increased risk of atrial fibrillation, or AF. In a Fast Track Congress article entitled Atrial Pacing Minimization in Sinus Known Dysfunction and Risk of Incident Atrial Fibrillation, a Randomized Trial, Mads, Briggs, and colleagues from the Aarhus University Hospital in Denmark, aimed at evaluating whether actual pacing minimization in patients with sinus node dysfunction reduces the incidence of AF. In a nationwide RCT, 540 patients with sinus node dysfunction and an indication for first pacemaker implantation were assigned to pacing programmed to a base rate of 60 BPM and rate-adaptive pacing, or dddr 60 or pacing programmed to a base rate of 40 BPM without rate-adaptive pacing, or DDD-40. Patients were followed on remote monitoring for two years. The primary endpoint was timed to first episode of AF longer than six minutes. Secondary endpoints included longer episodes of AF and the safety endpoint comprised a composite of syncope or presyncope. The median percentage of atrial pacing was 1% in patients assigned to DDD40 and 49% in patients assigned to DDDR60. The primary endpoint occurred in 124 patients, or 46%, in each treatment group. There were no between-group differences in AF exceeding 6 or 24-hour, persistent AF, or cardioversion for AF. The incidence of syncope or presyncope was higher in patients assigned to DDD40, hazard ratio 1.71, P equaling 0.01. Cronenberg et al. conclude that atrial pacing minimization in patients with sinus node dysfunction does not reduce the incidence of AF. Programming a base rate of 40 BPM without rate-adaptive pacing is associated with an increased risk of syncope or presyncope. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Ratika Parkash from the Queen Elizabeth II Health Sciences Centre in Halifax, Canada. Parkash notes that this study was successful in determining whether or not intrinsic sinus nodal activation is preferable to atrial pacing from the right atrial appendage. The hypothesis that minimization of atrial pacing would reduce the occurrence of AF was not supported. The genesis of AF in these patients could have been multifactorial, pulmonary vein triggers, atrial fibrosis, or altered atrial electrophysiological properties known to coexist with sinus node disease. Minimization of atrial pacing would only target avoidance of activation through right atrial appendage pacing, but would have little effect on the other mechanisms that promote AF. Alternatively, the increased atrial pacing in the DDDR60 group may have reduced the occurrence of AF by prevention of pauses and bradycardia that may increase atrial refractoriness and electrical dispersion. Finally, pacing in any mode may have little effect on AF in patients with sinus node dysfunction. And the occurrence of AF in this population may be the natural progression of a disease process that led to the sinus node dysfunction at the outset. While the introduction of the four pillars for the pharmacological treatment of HF has substantially improved the outcomes of HF, the role of cardiac resynchronization therapy with defibrillator or CRTD, remains more controversial. In a Fast Track Congress article entitled Upgrade of Right Ventricular Pacing to Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy in Heart Failure, a Randomized Trial, William Merkli and colleagues from the Semmelweis University in Budapest, Hungary indicate that among patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEFREF, with right ventricular pacing, or RVP, the efficacy of CRTD upgrade is uncertain. In this multicenter RCT, 360 symptomatic New York Heart Association Class 2-4A HEFREF patients with a pacemaker or implantable cardioverter defibrillator, or ICD, high RVP burden greater than or equal to 20%, and a wide-paced QRS complex duration greater than or equal to 150 milliseconds, were randomly assigned to receive CRTD upgrade, N equaling 215, or ICD, N equaling 145, in a 3 to 2 ratio. The primary outcome was the composite of all-cause mortality, hospitalization for HF or HHF, or less than 15% reduction of left ventricular end-systolic volume assessed at 12 months. Secondary outcomes included all-cause mortality, or HHF. Over a median follow-up of 12.4 months, the primary outcome occurred in 58 of 179, or 32.4%, in the CRTD arm versus 101 of 128, or 78.9% in the ICD arm, odds ratio 0.11, P being less than 0.001. All-cause mortality, or HHF, occurred in 22 of 215, or 10%, in the CRTD arm, versus 46 of 145, or 32%, in the ICD arm, hazard ratio 0.27, P being less than 0.001 the incidence of procedure or device-related complications was similar between the two arms. CRTD group, 25 of 211, or 12.3%, versus ICD group, 11 of 142, or 7.8%. Merkley and colleagues conclude that in pacemaker or ICD patients with significant RVP burden and reduced ejection fraction, Upgrade to CRTD compared with ICD therapy reduces the combined risk of all-cause mortality, HHF, or absence of reverse remodeling. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Cecilia Linda from the Karolinska University Hospital and the Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm, Sweden. Linda concludes that the impressive results of the Budapest CRT upgrade study are likely to influence future guidelines and clinical practice. The study clearly shows that upgrading to CRT is associated with improved outcomes. Secondly, the procedure is safe, which means that patients who develop left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF deterioration, should be upgraded to CRT without postponement. Thirdly, the results have implications for the organization of pacemaker and ICD follow-up to detect LV deterioration before HF develops, thus enabling upgrading to CRT. Lirodal Cipep, a novel small recumbent fusion protein of a pro-protein convertase subtilism stroke kexin type 9, or PCSK9, gene-binding domain, nectin, and human serum albumin demonstrated highly effective LDL cholesterol, or LDL-C, reduction with monthly 300 mg in 1.2 mg subcutaneous dosing in a Phase two trial. In a Fast-Track clinical research article entitled Long-Term Efficacy and Safety of Larodelcipep in Heterozygous Familial Hypercholesterolemia, the LIBERATE HEFH trial. Frederick Raal and colleagues from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, evaluated the safety and efficacy of Lerodal-Cipeb in a global Phase three trial in heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia patients requiring additional LDL-C lowering. Patients were randomized 2 to 1 to monthly subcutaneous injections of either Lerodal-Cipeb 300 mg or placebo for 24 weeks primary efficacy endpoints were the percent change from baseline in LDL-C at week 24 and the mean of weeks 22 and 24. In 478 randomized subjects, mean age 53 years, 52% female, mean baseline LDL-C 3.88 millimoles per litre, larodal Cipep reduced LDL-C compared with placebo by a percentage difference of minus 59% at week 24, by a percentage difference of minus 65% at the mean of weeks 22 and 24, p being less than 0.0001 for all. With Larodal CIPEP, 68% of subjects achieved both a reduction in LDLC greater than or equal to 50% and the recommended European Society of Cardiology LDLC targets during the study. Except for mild injection site reactions, treatment-emergent adverse events were similar between Larodol cipep and placebo. Ra et al conclude that lorodal-cipep, a novel anti-PCSK9 gene-small-binding protein dosed monthly as an alternative to monoclonal antibodies, significantly reduced LDL-C in subjects with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia with a safety profile similar to placebo. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Ulrich Laufs, Burend Isseman and Matthias Bloer from the University Hospital Leipzig in Germany. The authors conclude that PCSK9 is a close to ideal pharmacological target. For most practicing physicians, the daily issue is no longer the efficacy or safety of PCSK9 inhibitors, but the access to these medications. In addition, Raising the awareness about the importance of LDL-C lowering in cardiovascular disease, or CVD, risk management, requires continuous communication efforts. The Phase 3 Liberate HEFH study provides very important evidence for the high clinical usefulness of third-generation PCSK9 inhibitors that will very probably extend the therapeutic options for patients and facilitate better availability. With several therapeutic strategies to target PCSK9 being available, the question arises of whether therapies targeting PCSK9 through different mechanisms can be combined. Lerodal Cipep introduces a new PCSK9 targeting strategy, may have an application advantage over existing PCSK9 inhibitors and will further increase the awareness for very effective and safe LDL-C lowering medications. Whether larodal CIPAP addresses additional patient groups or an unmet need in LDL-C lowering beyond the generally undertreated CVD high-risk patients remains to be defined in the future. However, the novel data on a third-generation PCSK9 inhibitor move us another step closer to the perspective of early, potent and well-tolerated LDL-C lowering. The issue is also complemented by two rapid communications articles. In a contribution entitled, A Randomized Control Trial of Eplerinone in Asymptomatic Phospholamban PARG14 DEL Carriers, Remco de Brauer and colleagues from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands indicate that phospholamban PLN PARG14 DEL cardiomyopathy is an inherited disease caused by the pathogenic PARG14DEL variant in the PLN gene. Cardiac fibrotic tissue remodeling occurs early in PLN PARG14DEL carriers. plerinone was deemed a treatment candidate because of its beneficial effects on ventricular remodeling and antifibrotic properties. In this multi-center randomized trial in asymptomatic PLN-PARG14DEL carriers, study participants were randomized one-to-one to to receive either 50 mg of eplorinone once daily or no treatment. The follow-up duration was three years. 12-lead electrocardiogram or ECG, 24-hour three-channel halter registration, exercise testing, physical examination, medical history and event review, and venous blood analysis were performed yearly and assessed by experienced cardiologists. Cardiac magnetic resonance imaging was performed at baseline and at the end of follow-up, three years. The composite primary endpoint consisted of a greater than or equal to 10% increase in left and or right ventricular end-diastolic volume, or L-stroke RVEDV, a greater than or equal to 5% decrease in left and or right ventricular EF or L-stroke vef new development of late gadolinium enhancement or LGE as a measure of cardiac fibrosis, a greater than or equal to 100% increase, an absolute increase of greater than or equal to 1,000 premature ventricular contractions or PVCs on halter registration, development of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, decrease in QRS voltage on ECG of greater than or equal to 25%, development of cardiac symptoms necessitating treatment, and cardiovascular death. Within the three-year duration of the i forecast trial, disease progression, i.e. reaching the composite endpoint, was observed in two-thirds of participants in members of both the eplerinone and control groups. Future research into PLNP-ARG-14-DEL cardiomyopathy disease progression or modification and, more broadly, research into asymptomatic carriers of pathogenic variations associated with genetic cardiomyopathies may be better designed using the knowledge obtained in this study. In the second Rapid Communications article entitled Auditory stimulation of sleep slow waves enhances left ventricular function in humans. Carolina Lustenberger and colleagues from the ETH Zurich in Switzerland indicate that the specific mechanisms by which sleep contributes to cardiovascular health remain poorly understood. In this RCT involving healthy middle-aged men, the authors investigated the effects of enhancing slow waves, Prominent brain oscillatory patterns during non-rapid eye movement sleep through auditory stimulation on cardiovascular function. They found that slow wave stimulation significantly enhanced post-sleep left ventricular systolic and diastolic function. Altogether, the authors hypothesized that the beneficial effects are primarily attributed to enhancing strongly synchronized slow waves such as K-complexes, which modulate cardiovascular activity through autonomic activity during sleep and thereby may contribute to cardiovascular homeostasis. These results provide valuable insights for developing targeted interventions to promote cardiovascular health during sleep. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.